Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. People's Party founder Maxime Bernier claims foul re-CBC interview. I spoke with the People's Party leader about that. Global News West Block heard federal border security minister Bill Blair claim overwhelming majority of people who arrived in the surge of migrants last year have left. Michelle Rempel, conservative party citizenship and immigration critic, spoke to that. Sherry Arsenault's son and two friends were killed in a brutal drunk driver crash in 2011. Sherry is in Ottawa next week at a parliamentary committee hearing on Bill C-75. Janet Merlo was a leader of the RCMP women officers and civilian employees who brought the class action suit against the force on sexual harassment and assault being rampant within the RCMP. Janet emailed she's still being discriminated against, and she spoke with me about that. Neither Justin Trudeau nor Veterans Affairs Minister Seamus O'Regan will commit to providing Canadian Armed Forces veterans suffering with PTSD service dogs to improve their lives even though the Liberals have $372 million still unspent. Becky Zhao is a Surrey-British Columbia real estate agent whose husband was shot and killed as he answered the front door of her home. She's running for public office, but she has a national message. I've spoken with Maxime Bernier. He was a guest on this program last week, and he spoke to us very directly about what his party's about and what he's going to try to do. And he joins us uh, today because I sent him a direct message on Twitter saying, do you want to have a conversation about what happened on the CBC? Mr. Bernier, thank you very much uh, for the time today. Do you feel like you were set up? Yes, actually, you know, we uh, received that invitation a couple of days ago and it was supposed to be about the party and what's happening with us. And all the, all the, 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 the report was to uh, try to uh, create a doubt in people's mind that our party is financed by U.S. billionaires and it's a libertarian conspiracy. So it was a little bit bizarre that she, she made a story about uh, us being linked with uh, U.S. billionaires and raising money f- from U.S. billionaires. And we all know that it is not true. And we all know that we, can, we cannot do that in Canada. We have to respect Canadian electoral laws, and that's what we are doing. Mm. But she implies with her questions, and not only one question, but two or three times in the interview, that I violate uh, the Canadian electoral law laws and uh, that's not the case so you know i my uh, intention was to be there and to have a, a real discussion with a professional journalist but i think they had an agenda and that's why i didn't like was there an understanding going in about what the interview was going to be about it was supposed to be about uh, the People's Party of Canada and our, our program and what we believe in. And at the end, they did a, a kind of a anti-free market um, uh, policies and uh, tried to link us with uh, think tanks and billionaires. And, uh, uh, but that's not the case. Your money is coming from people. We are sending emails to our people and we raise money by 5, 10, 20 bucks. And uh, I'm very proud of that. We are able to raise money because people believe in our ideas. So you don't expect that from CBC. You expect from a, a public, publicly, uh, publicly funded broadcaster like CBC to uh, have a, a mandate and having also uh, re- 
respecting their mandate and having people with other point of view. But uh, I didn't have time to explain our point of view. So, so that's why uh, I'm not so happy with that interview. Well, I would, first of all, I would never ask you about whether you would accept money from the Koch brothers or their Atlas, uh, what is the Atlas, found, Atlas Network, because as a Canadian politician, you cannot accept uh, campaign funds from, from Americans. Yes. Right? And, I mean, you can't. So why, why ask, you that, ask you that question? I just want to read a couple of lines from the CBC story. Bernier has linked his political beliefs to libertarianism, an ideology that forms the bedrock of many of the populist governments which have swept into power from the U.S. to Brazil. These movements have been large, mostly homegrown, though some get ideological and strategic support from a global influence organization known as the Atlas Network, which is partially funded by American industrialists David and Charles Koch. Uh, the Atlas Network, founded more than three decades ago, connects think tanks around the world and promotes libertarian ideas. Bernier is not directly endorsed by At Atlas, as they don't support candidates, but he and two other senior staff members come from think tanks partnered with Atlas. So, I mean, th that just sounds, th that to me is disturbing. On the one hand, they say you're not associated with them, which you made clear in the interview, but on the other hand, it's it, it's like this Atlas Network, they pointed directly at you anyway. <laughs> because I worked with the Montreal Economic Institute 30, 13 years ago, and I'm proud of that. You know, it's a free market think tank, and I'm a free market politician, so I'm pushing free market ideas. Uh, but they tried to make indirectly a kind of a link, and there's there's no link over there. And everybody who follow Canadian politics, they know that. So, you know, coming from the public uh, broadcaster, uh, and they, they had an agenda, and they just want to discredit our, our movement and our party at the end. Ms. Mesley, and I'm uh, looking at the transcripts here, said to you, you have said that you'd like to be Canada's Ron Paul. He is seen as the intellectual godfather of the Tea Party. Is that what you want here? Do you want a Can Canadian Tea Party? You say, no, I didn't say that I wanted to be the Ron Paul. I really admire Ron Paul because he's an authentic politician. Ms. Mesley answers, but what about what he stands for? And you say, yeah, but he's an authentic politician. And then Ms. Mesley again, that's it. That's all you need to be is authentic. Well, I, I can answer for you. That's a good start. <laughs> it's a good start, for sure. And, and you know, uh, I'm, I'm a free market guy. I believe in freedom and free market and less government. So, uh, like Ron Paul, and, uh, you know, being a libertarian on the economic side, it is not something wrong. I think it's, it's, it is good. But what I admire from Ron Paul for the last uh, 20 years and when he was in politics, he was saying the same thing. And people are saying the same thing with me because uh, I deliver a speech on freedom and less government, on equalization, changing inequal change in equalization, uh, I think, eight years ago. And it's still uh, something that I believe in. So being an authentic politician, I think it's a, it's a quality in Canada. Well, I am, I'm looking at another question that you were asked by Ms. Mesley. She said, uh, but as you saw what happened to Ron Paul, had all of these, Ron Paul had all of these ideas you espouse as well, but the Tea Party sort of got hijacked by a lot of people with bigoted points of view. Are you afraid of that? Well, there are people within the Tea Party who would take Ms. Mesley to task for, for, for making that statement, and I don't know where sort of fits in. Either you have the information or you sort of don't. Um, you, you, I, I, think, I, think you were, I think you were being backed into a corner. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, no, they, they had a plan. They, they want us to, us people who believe in a smaller government to be seen as, I don't know, extremists. And I told her, you know, we are building a party based on values, individual freedom, personal responsibility, respect and fairness. And people who believe in these uh, values, they will come. And people who don't, they're not. So it's, it's simple like that. Uh, so, you know, it's always to discredit uh, our movement and, and without having real uh, facts, actually. So that's why I'm, I'm so mad about that. Let me go to another line here and have you respond to this. When Ms. Mesley said, and I'm again, I'm quoting from the transcript from the CBC, would you not want their help, that's the Koch brothers, would you not want their help, either the Koch brothers or the Atlas Network's help now? They've helped you in the past. Have they? <laughs> and my answer was no, no, and no. She tried three, four times to... Uh, no, but she says right there, Mr. Bernier, she says right there that they've helped you in the past. She's making a statement, not asking her question. Yeah, yes, yeah, she is, and that's not true. I don't know the Koch co- writer. I never met them. I don't know them. You know, I'm doing politics in Canada. I know the Atlas Foundation because, you know, <laughs> I, I know what they're doing, but I don't know anything or anybody working over there. I know the name. I know what they're doing. But, you know, she, she implied that uh, <laughs> I know these people, and because I know these people, I must receive money, but I don't know them first. So that's, that's why it is, uh, it is not uh, – uh, she's showing a lack of pro- professionalism, and uh, I'm very uh, – very unhappy with that. No, I just want to know how you're feeling about it, because there's another question. What will you do if Koch brothers call you? I mean, you've already said what you yeah, said. I, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> they won't call me. I don't know them. And I, I'm raising money, and I'm able to raise money. In, in 20, 20 days, we were able to raise $140,000 by by people by canadians by hard-working ordinary canadians and and we are able to build that party because of that so it's going very well now we have a, a challenge to have writing association ready before the end of this year and people are working on that i have five four people working full-time for the party uh, so that's going well but we we don't need we don't need money from outside and we don't want money from outside this country we are following the legislation, and because we are able to raise money, she thinks that, uh, oh, that's money coming from outside and not respecting the, our legislation in Canada. Why we are able to raise money? It is because people believe in our ideas, and they want these ideas to be uh, a reality in Canada. So that's why they're giving to our movement, to our party. So I, I was, uh, she tried four, four times to uh, uh, different ways to ask the same kind of question. If I have a link uh, and if I know uh, the Koch brothers, but I don't know them and I don't want to, to deal with them. I don't need to deal with them. I'm doing politics in Canada. Yeah, well, I'm also seeing here Rebel TV is mentioned. You got a lot of criticism for your comments about extreme multiculturalism. You also got a lot of support. Kicked off quite a debate. It's become a bit of a dog whistle for people with bigoted points of view. I wonder if she's calling me a bigot. And, and, I, <laughs> and I know that you have spoken out about how you don't want these people in your party. You're trying to get them off your social media. But I do wonder if you've noticed that rebel media, for example, does seem to be fond of you. It's been accused, of course, of being supportive of white supremacist points of view, and they're supporting you. So Ezra Levant have... Uh, they have a million subscribers on YouTube and 150,000 followers on Facebook. Do you want his support? Do you want his audience? 
Where did that yeah. question come from and what did you say? Well, my answer was pretty clear. I said, first of all, I didn't receive an invi- invitation to go to, uh, to do an interview with the rebel and with Ezra. And uh, I actually, I received one this morning and I'll be with them. Uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, do that next week. And I'm very proud. Like I said during the interview, you know, I will use all the, the, the media that I, to reach Canadians. So I'm here. I, like I said, I'm here with you here at CBC. I try to reach more people. Uh, if I have an invitation with the rebel, I'll be there. And I received uh, this morning an invitation from Ezra, and I can tell you that I'll be with him. We'll try to find a time next week. Uh, I don't agree with her what she was saying about the rebel, and uh, maybe she's a little bit jealous because they have a lot of people who are watching. Uh, you know, the credibility of a politician in Canada, it's very low, and I think with, uh, with what she did with that interview, that's not helping also the credibility of uh, Joe Maddis. Ms. Mesley, just point out, uh, Mr. Bernier, and I quote, Andrew Scheer won't go on Levant show anymore after what happened in Charlottesville. That is, uh, was seen as promoting racist ideas. You don't have a problem with that, she asks. And at that point, you said you didn't receive an invitation to go on the show, and you've just told us that you will. So, uh, but you're, you're doing it, you tell me, because you'll go anywhere. Is that right? Are there places you wouldn't go, people you wouldn't talk to? But, you know, I won't go on a show where you have uh, racist people over there and people who, who don't believe in Canadian values, and I don't think that Ezra is like that. So I'll be with him, and uh, I know that Andrew Scheer decided not to uh, to go on his show. But for me, Ezra, you know, he can reach a lot of people, okay. and for me, Ezra is not a racist. Well, I found it an interesting story, and uh, here you are starting a new political party. And uh, there was all the, the questions disturbed me, frankly. But I, I wanted to hear your point of view, and I do appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So have a nice afternoon. Thank you. We'll have you back, Maxime Bernier. As people move through that system, they will be subject to removal, and those who are not eligible to stay will be removed from the country. Some of them just choose to leave. I will tell you that we, we did experience a surge of people uh, last year. We found a very small percentage of them were actually eligible to stay, and the overwhelming majority of those people have left. Michelle Rempel is the Conservative Party of Canada immigration and uh, citizenship critic. And she joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Michelle, thanks for uh, for joining us. What what do you hear the the minister saying there? It's just it's it's ludicrous. I mean, I have the numbers that we've obtained through formal requests to public safety, and the number of people that have been removed from the country after illegally entering the country and claiming asylum in the last two years is a few dozen. I mean, it's, and, and we've had tens of thousands of people cross the border, so it's, it's a flat-out lie. I mean, liar, liar, pants on fire. Either that or he's profoundly incompetent. I, I, it is only one of those two things. I mean, this guy was hired by the prime minister not to actually do anything because he doesn't, to anybody listening, he doesn't have anybody report to him. Like the RCMP doesn't report to him. Canadian Border Services Agency doesn't report to him. He was hired specifically to be a spin doctor, and he's failing even at that. So, like, why are we even paying a salary? Like, like, I mean, it's it, it's disrespectful. It's ridiculous, and he's just a liar, he's a flat out liar. Well, I, I know the Global News, after having heard the uh, 
the minister make his statement, started to pursue this with with the press secretary, and uh, and what they got from the press secretary is is in the story. And the story is asked about migrant surge. Bill Blair said says overwhelming majority of those people have left, and I I tweeted that story out. It's at the Roy Green Show. You'll be able to find it there. Uh, I I I don't look. I don't even understand. I don't understand what he's saying because if I remember correctly, he's saying that a small major, a small minority of people had the right to apply, and of those people, the vast majority have already left, which would suggest that the majority of people who came in uh, didn't have any right to be here. And he doesn't address that. I uh, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just obtuse about this. Well, let me be very clear from my position and my point of view, and I think a lot of Canadians' point of view, if you have reached the safety of upstate New York, you should not be in a position to claim asylum in Canada because you have already reached one of the safest places in the world. So I don't think anybody should be eligible and under the auspices of the Safe Third Country Agreement, this is why, Roy, like how many conversations have you and I had about this now? What, like three dozen? I don't know. At least. You know, where they just need to extend the Safe Third Country Agreement across the entire border. But, I mean, like, this spin today is so irresponsible, right? Because it's just, it's completely misinforming the public. I mean, and again, I just want to reemphasize, this is either him, this is either him completely fabricating something or being completely out to lunch and completely incompetent. And, like, my, my understanding now is that he's trying to spin this by saying, like, oh, I meant that. But that is not what he said on this television show, and that is not what the facts show. The facts show that it is, it's somewhere in the neighborhood out of 30,000-plus people that have entered Canada this way. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 or so that have been removed. So, like, that is not an overwhelming majority. I mean, there's all of these leftist outlets that are, you know, baloney meter, fact check, when we talk about things in the House of Commons, I sure hope he gets one of those on this one, because he's being paid to spin, and like, this is, this is crossing the line on spin. This is just a flat-out fabrication, and that's irresponsible. So here's from the, uh, from the story on uh, Global News, and of course it was West Block, Global News television program. Following his remarks, Global News requested clarification from a spokesperson for Blair, that's because the number reported by the Toronto Star on September the 8th cites Canada Border Service agency statistics that only 398 of the 32,173 people who crossed the U.S. border irregularly into Canada between April 2017 and August 2018 have actually been deported, 398 of 32,173. And of those, 146 were sent back to the United States because 116 of them had American citizenship. I mean, the whole thing is just... That's right. So, again, these are some of the statistics that we've been able to obtain through these order paper questions or these official questions to the government that we can ask. And one of the statistics on that order paper question, as you're you're talking about, it showed that 65% of the people who are are illegally crossing into Canada and claiming asylum from the United States already have a legal reason or a legal status to be in the U.S., like, the, like they can be there. It's okay. And so when I stood up in the House of Commons this week to talk about this, I got some sort of weird baffle gab out of, out of this minister of nothing. And he stood up and he said something about, like, keeping children in cages. That that's, I, I couldn't tell if it, that's what they were doing or, or whatnot. And, I, I mean, 
can you imagine that instead of like actually honing in on their responsibility, the Liberals' responsibility to keep our borders safe and secure, to maintain a compassionate asylum system where the world's most vulnerable, not people who are in upstate New York, have priority, that's the sort of stuff, like this is like three days in a row we're seeing this. So it's just, I, I never thought I'd be in a situation where I'd say this, but I'd almost take the existing immigration minister and public safety minister over this guy. I mean, they must feel really bad, too, having to report into this guy or whatever the reporting structure is. Can you imagine that? But I think the people that are getting the raw, raw end of the deal are Canadians because they just want some good policy and they're not getting that. In uh, 30 seconds, what happens about this as far as you're concerned in the Commons? I, I mean, look, like, I, I mean, question period this week, it was the first week back after the summer recess. And it was just, I'm, it was just disgusting display on the part of the Liberals. Like it's just flat out fabrications and spin. Okay. So I mean, I'll continue to push for answers on this. Um, you can bet that I will continue to push for answers on this. But at this point right. in time, I'll just be honest with you. I think we need a change in government. That's the only way we're going to see change. All right, Michelle. Thanks for the time. Thank you, as always. Okay, Michelle Rempel, the Conservative Party citizenship and immigration critic. I remember speaking with Sherry Arsenault shortly, relatively shortly after she lost her son to uh, a drunk driver, Jonathan Pratt. Um, He was sentenced to eight years in prison for killing Bradley Arsenault, Sherry's son, and Thaddeus Lake and Cole Novak, her son's friends. And now Bill C-75 has been introduced by the federal government, omnibus legislation, which many feel is going to not only change the way impaired drivers are prosecuted in Canada, but significantly water down how impaired drivers are in fact sentenced and dealt with in Canada. And it should be known and stated that until fairly recently, and I think it's still uh, probably still the rule of thumb, if you kill somebody while you're driving drunk, you're going to get a maximum of four years if you kill one person, four years, and you'll serve maybe 22 months. It's awful. Sherry Arsenault joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Hi, Sherry. Uh, hello, how are you? Well, I'm I'm fine. How are you doing? Oh, I'm not doing too bad. You know, I, I struggle along every day. Yeah, you and I talked uh, the other day off the air, and I found it, uh, I found it absolutely unacceptable that the the man who killed your son and, and his two friends is living a fairly normal life except for the fact that he checks into the minimum security prison every night and sleeps there. Yeah, that's that's about the, the size of it. Uh, after a mere few weeks or a few months in prison, they, uh, they, offenders pretty much live no differently than most Canadians. They live in a, a little bungalow and they have... The only thing they're missing is their societal freedom. They get up and they go to work every day. This Jonathan Pratt is driving almost 200 kilometers an hour when he ran into the car which carried your your son and his two friends, and he had a blood alcohol level two and a half times the legal limit. So he's, he's, he's looking for full parole, right? He's, uh, yes, this is, it'll actually be the second time, and he's asking for full parole this fall. And uh, 
you know, who will will be there and we'll do our best to, I mean, at the most, he'll only serve two-thirds of a sentence anyways. I mean, that's our uh, how it's currently legislated for statutory re- release. Yeah. And they have to let them out after two, two-thirds served. It's not yep, a question they, of will we, unless they're defined as a, as a risk, a, a dangerous risk. And yes, that has to be before the trial. Yeah. yeah, or they commit a crime while in prison. Or they which, commit a crime while in prison. Which I find, you know, that'd be... Uh, pretty hard to do. Yeah. This Bill C-75, what is it that concerns you most about? And and you told me that one of your greatest concerns is it's being rushed through Parliament. It's such a huge piece of legislation. How do you see it affecting individuals who drive drunk and kill? Well, that's just it. I mean, the, uh, what the Liberals did was they took seven, I believe it's seven, smaller bills, and they threw them all into one, uh, all regarding our criminal justice system, and and within this bill, there's uh, it's this bill is meant to address Jordan's law, but within this bill is one section, and it's uh, section five, and it is the reclassification of offenses, and and in that they're taking over 130 serious crimes and reducing them at prosecutorial option to summary convictions. Which in, which in layman's terminology means? Well, indictable offenses in, in layman's terminology is sentences that were considered right now in our current legis- legislation from two to ten years will be reduced to a mere fine to a maximum of two years less a day. So in other words, they're taking, in hope to uh, address the backlog in our courts, they're taking them from a federal courtroom and throwing them onto the provincial courtrooms. Yeah, so that's 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 just a, definitely not a solution. But but you're con- do you have a concern that you're not really going to be listened to or properly heard next week? Well, you know, I addressed I addressed uh, the justice committee twice already regarding Bill C forty six, trying to get you know more of a sentence that fits the crime, and in this case. Well, it all fell on deaf ears, so I I will not be surprised if, again, their mind is already made up, they have the majority, and everything I have to say as a victim will will fall on to deaf ears. And you would like to see minimum sentencing, right? Well, I'd like to see, I mean, right now, the sentence does not fit the crime. No, it doesn't. It just, it's not even close to, and especially with, with our you know, parole eligibility, things like that, it's not even close. And I, I would like to see a mandatory minimum sentence for serious crimes. You know, crimes especially that uh, involve loss of life to mm-hmm. innocent people. Yeah. And, and I, and, and I want to see that because I believe that would be a deterrence to the general public yeah. and a specific deterrence to the offender. I agree. Yeah, and, and most thinking people would agree. But when you get governments or political parties with an agenda, they get a piece of legislation and they try to ram it through and take care of every every aspect of what their agenda is. But you now, in this case, with Bill C-75, are going to be left essentially with victims' rights being ignored. And well, and, I, and I'm very worried about that. And well, clearly you are. And that, that's the problem. This bill completely ignores victims. 
It has no regard for victims, and in fact, it makes offenders into the victims. And, uh, you know, a government's fundamental responsibility is to protect the public, Canadians, all Canadians. And in this bill, they're totally ignoring that and going forward with something that, you know, in in my opinion, puts impaired driving and all serious crimes 10 steps backwards. Why don't we do this? Let's you and I talk next weekend on the show about what you will have experienced in Ottawa, how you will have been met, what the reaction was, and how you were treated, and what your expectations are based on that treatment. I, I would love that. I would give a full account of, of how, how it all goes down. Okay. So I'll touch base with you during the week, Sherry, and we'll set up a time, and we'll have you back on the show next weekend, and, uh, and, and, and we'll hear just how responsive the federal government is to the to the demands and the expectations and the pleas of a mom who lost her son in the most horrific circumstance, and other mothers have lost their children, and the the focus seems to be on the re, on, on the on the offender, and not on the victims. We'll talk next weekend, Sherry. Well, thank you very much, Roy. You take good care, Sherry Arsenault Bye. from Edmonton, or just outside Edmonton, joining us on the Roy Green Show. Yeah, four years. So n- nobody forced you to drink. No one. No one forced you to drink and go out and kill somebody. I got to know Janet Merlo by phone, I think. Janet, was it, what, five or six years ago? Maybe more? For sure. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm good, too. I'm glad to hear you say that you're good. Janet Merlo, former RCMP officer and the author of No One to Tell, Breaking My Silence on Life in the RCMP. Um, we spent so many, so many hours talking about what was going on and what was being done to you and Catherine Galliford and Krista Carley and other women in the, in the RCMP. Uh, and eventually there was the, there was the class action lawsuit, uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment. And the government made a big deal about their news conference that day with Ralph Goodale in attendance and the former commissioner in attendance and there were even tears in the eyes of the former commissioner and and here we are um, sometime further down the road and things are not a whole lot better for some of the women who are specifically engaged in that lawsuit and Janet, if I get this correctly, it's because the RCMP and the government, the people who are, who should be, who should really be thanking you and respecting you are doing pretty much neither. Well, they don't seem to be doing anything for anybody. And, and that interview you just mentioned will be, it'll be three years in October. Wow. Three years next month since we met for that national apology. Wow. Three years. Nothing has changed. And, and, and there, are, there are still many women who, and I've spoken to some, who are going through terrible post-traumatic stress disorder and who tell me that they don't know if they'll ever recover from what happened to them. Yeah, it, uh, it's torn many lives apart, that's for sure. Yeah. So you, you sent me a, 
a, a copy of a, of a letter that you sent to the new commissioner, Brenda Lucky. Mm-hmm. And Commissioner Lucky insists that there's really nothing significantly broken about the RCMP. And the commissioner should probably realize that saying that is just so wrong, and she wouldn't be the commissioner if there was nothing wrong with the RCMP. Because the other guy would still be in charge. Yeah, that's right. I heard from so many people after she made that statement, thinking of all we've tried to do over all the years for her to stand up there in the new position of leadership that she has, and to say that, that was just crushing for a lot of people. How long were you an RCMP officer? 20 years. And how important was that job to you? How important was it for you going in to be a first responder? How important was it to you to graduate from the academy and become a certified Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer? It was an amazing experience. I I thought I would be doing that job for 30, 35 years if I could. And things started to go badly how quickly? Well, pretty much right out of the gate. We, uh, we experienced the harassment in depot in 1991 in our basic training. And, but we just, you know, thought it was a way to, for them to toughen us up and get used to being yelled and screamed at and things like that. But once we went to, once I went to the detachment in Nanaimo, it was, it was very clear from the beginning that, that that was the culture and, and it started almost from the beginning. I don't, I'm not, I don't want, to want you to go through everything again. We've talked about all these things. I don't want you to experience it again. But I, would you mind reading the, the letter the, the, that you sent to the commissioner? Sure, sure. I um, wrote it the other day, or on Tuesday, I believe was I sent it. And I said, uh, Dear Brenda, I wanted to reach out to you after going to Chris's service where some retired and fired members were wearing their red serge. I'll try to get through it without crying. I mentioned how I would love to have worn mine too, because despite what people think, and despite my anger sometimes, I am truly proud of my time in the force. Krista was too, and her serge was on the front table with her high browns. When I left in 2010, I received the forms in which I was denied not only a retired member ID, but also denied the ability to wear my uniform. It was not supported, and I was crushed because I didn't do anything wrong. I was forced out of a toxic work environment that made me sick and took away everything I had medically, emotionally, and mentally. I was the effing woman with a big mouth. Keep it shut if you want to keep your job. I never got to raise my kids and concentrate on a career. I lost my holidays just before we went to go away because I refused a blowjob. After that, there was an operational need to keep me there, and I lost both my holiday with my girls and all the money I had put down on deposits. I had career plans and goals that were never to be. Since the service, I went looking for the form and found it yesterday in my binders. I've scanned it for you. I had asked in our online support group, and everybody who retired medically has been given these privileges, as well as Krista, and we were troopmates and retired on the same day for the same reason, honorably. 
I feel that it was not supported simply because they were so angry at me when they were forcing me out. Health services told me that if I didn't sign the medical discharge forms, I would be fired and given nothing, no pension, nothing. I had already, I was already broken and signed out of fear because I knew our marriage was falling apart and I would soon be a single mom. I couldn't raise my girls with nothing. I left my surge behind in my house when I left my husband, and no doubt he has probably long gotten rid of it because of the brutal punishment he too endured because he was married to me. I think he probably burned it at some point because he was so mad at divorce, but I have no idea where it is or where it went. We no longer speak since there is no need to. Our girls are adults now. I would love to have a search place on my table one day in memory of my RCMP career. I would love to have the right to wear the red surge as a service for any other member we may lose because I know of a few who are hanging by a thread and I'm sure there will be more suicides before the force is fixed. In an act of good faith, would you please consider changing this not supported document so that I can have the same privileges that others have it would really mean a lot to me well i i know i i I hear your words i know your story i know a lot of your story i don't know it all i don't understand why other than it's just downright nasty cold vindictiveness that you have been denied the opportunity and the right that others who lead the rcmp honorably as you did they have the right to wear their uniform at special events, at, 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 at funerals. I mean, I find it hard to talk about Krista. I can't imagine what it's like for you. Uh, and, and here they are. That's just mean-spirited, ugly behavior on, on the part of people who, who should know better. And there's no reason for you to be treated as you are being treated. You were the victim in all of this, and you're still the victim in all of this. Well, you know, when I sent that message out to our support group and asked, you know, just so I had my facts straight before I sent off the form and asked for her to to change it, one of the other girls came back and said that she had been denied the same because she had made a human rights complaint, a complaint to the Human Rights Commission. So just because she had gone to the Human Rights Commission to report how they were violating her rights, she was also denied. So there's a second example of that vindictiveness. When they decide they want to get rid of you, that's exactly what they do. Janet, hold on, please. Janet Merlo, who served for 20 years in the RCMP, and you know the story now of the, and you've known it for some time, about the about the assaults that would, took place within the force against women, and there are still hundreds of women who are um, waiting for absolute, I guess, closure on the, on the lawsuit, and if, if they'll ever get closure on their lives, I don't know. But uh, let me just play a little bit of, uh, of, of Dan Wainer's song. Just before we do, uh, Jan, Dan Wainer's a singer-songwriter who wrote a tribute to Janet Merlo. Well, what's the background on the song? How did you how did you get to meet Dan, and how did the song come about, Janet? Well, he, he actually contacted me on Facebook initially and uh, and sent a message and just and, and told me what he had done, said that his, he had worked in the sciences for years, and, and my story kind of resonated with what he had seen in the science world with 
you know, women who who struggled in 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 that world and and he wrote songs and, and played music on his days off in his downtime and he had written this song and he wanted me to read it or listen to it, sorry, and and let me know let him know what I thought of it. Anyway it was it was so touching and it was such so well done. I responded to him and we started communicating back and forth and he worked through the the fine tuning of it and the harmonies and stuff and came up with the finished product and and I'm totally honored. I got to meet him when I was in Ottawa one time last year and he's just an amazing individual and yeah, it means so much to me that he, he thought enough to do something like that. Well let's have a listen to Dan Weiner and his song about uh, Jenna Merlo. To hang up this scarlet tunic You once wore with pride After twenty years of service So hard to walk away Doesn't really matter It's impossible to stay You look into the mirror See the sadness in your eyes You'll break the news tomorrow But it won't be a surprise If you knew what you would go through If you knew how it would end would you set the wheels in motion? Would you do it all again? Would you do it all again? So uh, I, I'm going to jump in only because I want to spend a couple more minutes talking to you, Janet. That's such a mm-hmm. great tribute to you. Is that available? That's all. Um, well, I have I have it on my computer, and I've been procrastinating just contacting radio stations and getting it out there and stuff but I can uh, I can certainly send it to anybody who'd like it if they wanted to contact me on Facebook okay and that's M-E-R-L-O Janet Merlot um, yeah. Ralph Goodell's not communicating with you at all right no I've sent a f- well two or three emails since Chris's death and and he hasn't responded I did get one response from a clerk saying thank you for your concerns, and that was about it. Thank you for your concerns. Yeah. What are you expecting from the commissioner and uh, after your letter to her? You know what? I honestly really don't even expect a response. She emailed me after Krista's, Krista's passing and, and sent her condolences and said she was looking forward to working with me and hearing any recommendations I had and things like that and I haven't heard anything since so and and I didn't get any response to my message the other day and I and I guess I really didn't expect you I just sent it out to see what would happen and and I'm not surprised that there's just been silence well much of Canada's aware of it now <laughs> yeah well we'll see we'll have to wait and see by the way, in uh, my podcast today, uh, later on, uh, on the Roy Green Show, there'll be a link to where our listeners can listen to your, the song to you. So we've got, we'll, we'll have that there, RoyGreenShow.com. Just subscribe to the podcast or listen to the podcast today. Um, I, I just, I'm so glad I was able to touch base with you. I'm so glad we were able to have you uh, join us on the air and hear people, have people hear you. Because I, I, I hear from Canadians on a reasonably regular basis 
wanting to know how you're doing, how Catherine Galliford is doing, how other women uh, within the RCMP they've gotten to know by by hearing you and seeing you, uh, how you're all doing. And uh, so there's there's deep national concern and affection for you. I just wanted Aww, you to know thank that. Thank you. Catherine's doing well. I'm going out in November, so I'll get to see her then. I haven't seen her in quite a while, so good. I'm looking forward to it. Good. Well, take good care, Janet, and we will stay in touch with you. And thanks for sharing that letter. And hopefully the commissioner does the right thing. And if not, we'll just have to remind her. <laughs> Thank you so much. appreciate it. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Janet Merlo, her book is No One to Tell, No One to Tell, Breaking My Silence on Life in the RCMP. I think that song sounds great by Dan Rader. I want to talk to uh, my good friend, Dr. Stanley Coran. He's a professor of psychology, actually professor emeritus at UBC, University of British Columbia. He's a world expert on dog behavior, and he's an international dog show judge. But I have to tell you, his most recent book is God's Ghosts and Black Dogs. I haven't read that one yet, God's Ghosts and Black Dogs. But Stanley, Stan, I'll tell you, my favorite book in the world, Born to Bark. (laughs) That's the one where I appear to be the silliest because I was just learning about dogs at that point. (laughs) No, it's so good because it reminds me of a... A little twerp at my house. It wouldn't be a little Yorkie, would it? It might. <laughs> <laughs> and his and his blind buddy, the Bichon. <laughs> and and when the Yorkie barks, which is at everything, as you know, because he's a terrier, the Bichon barks, but he does not got a clue what he's barking at because he can't see what he's barking at. He's barking because his buddy barks. And so they're pointed in opposite directions barking. So they cover all, basically, <laughs> all the important compass points. <laughs> you are alerted that something is happening. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> What's, uh, let, me, let me ask you to put on your psychologist's hat. What's a simple explanation of post-traumatic stress disorder, and, and what does it do to a person? Post-traumatic stress disorder, it's, it's had a lot of different names at different times. Uh, uh, back in World War II, it was called uh, uh, shell shock. Uh, a little bit later, it was called disaster syndrome. Um, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder is one in which, uh, because a person has uh, experienced some major trauma, um, little things uh, in in their subsequent life will trigger all of those negative emotions. And uh, it can be... Um, you know, just feelings of anxiety at the low level, but it can actually be uh, uh, paralyzing. I mean, you know, there's uh, uh, we've been involved uh, in a study uh, looking at uh, at the effects of dogs on uh, with individuals uh, uh, who have uh, post-traumatic stress, and one of the individuals uh, um, would have his anxiety. Uh, uh, symptoms, actually full-blown panic attacks, um, triggered uh, when he was simply surrounded by three or four people, and he would just freeze in place, and he would look like a statue, and, and you know, you had to sort of bring him out of that. Um, so, um, basically, uh, you can think of it this way. You had a really bad event occur in your life, and then... Um, the uh, as later on in your life and sometimes throughout the rest of your life, 
you would uh, have the same emotions associated with that traumatic event triggered by by current events. By the way, Charles Dickens had that. Um, he was um, in a uh, disastrous uh, train uh, wreck. A whole lot of people were killed and hurt and that sort of thing. And uh, after that, uh, for the rest of his life, whenever he heard the sound of a train, uh, he would start to sweat and shake. Uh-huh. Well, what's the importance? What's the importance, or what can the importance be, of a dog to a person with PTSD, particularly a military veteran? And if it's a trained service dog, what 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 impact could a dog have? Might a dog have on a veteran struggling with PTSD? Well, the first thing we have to ask is what do dogs do in general to sort of help people out of stressful situations? And back in the 1980s, a uh, wonderful pair of researchers, uh, Alan Beck, a psychologist, and Aaron Ketcher, a psychiatrist, <coughs> uh, took physi- physiological measures of people and found that when they were interacting and petting a, um, uh, a friendly dog, a whole bunch of changes occurred in their body. Their breathing became more regular, their blood pressure went down, their their heart rate went down, their muscles uh, relaxed, and later on, uh, uh, you know, uh, as uh, research methodologies improved, uh, we were able to show that uh, the stress hormones, the corticosteroids, uh, go down. And uh, there's another hormone, which is uh, called oxytocin, and uh, some people call it the love hormone, but it's, it's something which is associated with with uh, with deep affection and bonding, that goes up. So all of those changes occur uh, when you're interacting with a dog. Now you take a case where you have an individual who is having um, these kinds of uh, stress-related problems. Now, you can treat them with drugs, uh, and that will help some. But, um, you know, if you take something like Prozac, um, that drug will take up to six months for it to sort of build up uh, so that it has its full impact. And if you fail to take the drug for just two or three days, you're back to ground zero and have to build it up again. Now, the effects that the dog has are very, very similar to the effects that Prozac has, except that they take a minute or two to, of, of interaction uh, to build up. And then they could last several hours uh, afterwards. So some uh, psychologists have referred to therapy dogs as Prozac on pause. And so these animals uh, then, uh, the the individual learns very quickly that if they feel the the anxiety coming on, they can reach down and touch the dog. And that begins to relax them. and, And very often that will... Uh, avoid a full-blown panic attack. And the other thing is that these dogs, I mean, you know, they're almost magic sometimes. Uh, After a while, uh, being with a person, uh, many of these therapy dogs learn to anticipate when the individual is about to have uh, this, this anxiety attack. And so they come in and start nuzzling and um, uh, demanding attention before the person actually starts to show the symptoms. Oh. And so you avoid an entire negative session. Yeah, that's just so incredibly, incredibly important. And these these veterans need these dogs, and the money is there. At least read the report. 
or as I wrote in my, I ended my uh, my blog piece, write the damn check. Stan, well, it, I, I have to run. I thank you so much for the time. It's, it's always great talking to you, and I, we have to have you on the show more often because when this show goes to the dogs, it's an improvement. <laughs> you take care and thank pat you. your pups for me. I will. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dr. Stanley Corrin. He's giving me great advice about my guys. Becky Zhao is a Surrey, British Columbia real estate agent. She's also running for municipal office. Her husband was shot and killed as he answered the uh, front door of their home. He shouted at his family to take cover just before he died. And uh, Becky Zhao not only has a message for voters in Surrey, but she also has a message for people across Canada. She wants to speak to a, a national audience, and that's why she's with us today. Ms. Zhao, thank you very much for taking the time. and. And my sincere condolences on your on your great loss. Thank you, Roy. Thank you to have me here. It's my honor and privilege to be on your show and speak uh, across the country. Now, why uh, why are you running for public office in Surrey? What made you decide to take that step? We I want to see changes. I want to see the the public safety. I want to changes on that's the main that's the crime. That's my main concern. I want to see um, mandatory minimums on carry restricted firearms. You know, I know people if they people that follow the rule, they have never, you know, we, we have no concern for those. It's for the people that they they um, they're, they're, they have long criminal history, and they they do it again and again. And those are the people that we, if they they got caught carrying guns and restricted firearms. It should be mandatory minimum. You know, I was speaking about that with Scott Newark, a former Crown Attorney in uh, Alberta, just yesterday. And uh, there are some, some really deep concerns. I, I, I'm hesitant to ask you this question, but I, but I have to. Uh, are, are you okay to speak to us about what happened that night in 2015 when, when your husband died? Because that really is the, it's the nucleus of your, of your message. So can guy, you... we, yes, that night we, I came home late after my showing. I got some client uh, showing some houses, came home. My husband putting my daughter to bed. And I sat down. I went back. I say hi to them. I, I came back to the, my office, checking on computer and try to finish some work. And that's the time we hear a doorbell. The doorbell rang. We, I guess my husband... And the cousin went downstairs, tried to open the door, check who that was. They see, they didn't see anybody, and I guess the the guy the the guy holding a gun was hiding behind the garage, so they didn't see anybody. So my husband opened the door. So I guess that's what that was a big mistake when they opened the door, and the guy holding a gun and and put his hands inside the door, and that's how it started. It. We didn't know what happened. We were so scared. It was just it was terrifying. And we, we we didn't know what what was happening. He was shooting at the front door already. And my husband was able to con- uh, hold on his hand with a gun, fought at him and push him out the front lawn. But then he shot him on the front lawn when he came, when he went back in. He, he he got him out the front lawn and came back in and he shot him when he was in the doorstep when he came back in, when he ran back into the door. So, you know, it's, you know, I don't want anybody to go through what I've been when flu, it's it's not the way to you know to see 
passing my head's been passing in the front door. It's not the way to go. That shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't be worried about when we go to bed and somebody holding a gun in your door. No. And that guy that shot my husband is only 22 years old, and he has a long history of criminal uh, con- conviction. He, he, since his teenager, he's been, he's been uh, breaking homes, stealing, stealing cars. He's, he he has all kinds of charges. And he, prior to that, he was on uh, a $1,000 bailout uh, for uh, rape, breaking and rape a girl um, at her, when he was sleeping. When she was sleeping, so she wasn't. He wasn't a thousand dollar bailout. You know, it shouldn't be people like that with long history of criminal should not be walking on the street. Michelle, you have a very strong, uh, very strong feelings about about guns and and gun ownership. I've long yeah. said that for you know from from my perspective, owning a firearm if you're a, if you're a law abiding citizen that's not an issue to me, but it certainly is an issue to you, right? Owning it, firearms is it, a concern. If the regular people that they follow the rule, those we don't have concern. Those who always follow the rule. It's those ones that they don't follow the rule and they, they want to use firearms and guns to kill people and to, to, to um, hurt other people. Those are the ones that, that need to be controlled. So if they got caught carrying firearm on the street, then they should be mandatory minimum on those. Yeah. The people that use it for the, for the range... Those is okay. Those are for recreation. They won't. They won't be uh, hurting anybody. So those is okay. Those is no concern. But you want to see people who are carrying a firearm in public on the street. Yeah, in public on the street. Yeah, uh, got caught for that. They should be. Yeah, uh, they they have this minimum sentence. Yeah. What are you hearing in response to that? Are people generally supportive of that? I I'm quite sure. Uh, other people, some people out there supporting those. Even Ontario, they have a problem on, on so many shootings, especially lately. Mm-hmm. And the, the guy that uh, wasn't the guy just got um, just, uh, shot, shot lifting for two days ago before he shot nine people. Mm-hmm. So those, you know, if they, they know that they cannot carry the gun, maybe they will. So they it's, the carrying, it's the carrying of a firearm in a public place that concerns you. Whether it's a whether it's a legally owned firearm or an illegal firearm, you just don't want guns to be out in public. Yeah. And and if you carry them in public, whether you have a license for the gun or not, if if you're using it at a shooting range or if you're if you're going hunting, you're okay with that. But if people carry them in a public environment, that concerns you deeply. Given what's happened in your life, I fully understand that. Yeah. Now you also want uh, an increased police presence. In, in this country. And, you know, when I, when I read that from you, I was thinking it's, not, it's really not that long ago that there used to be two police officers in every police cruiser. And, and then because of budgetary issues, I guess, it's now down to one. How can, what's, what's your greatest concern about, about police presence in communities? In, in our community, like Surrey, we, we have population of uh, over half a million population. And I... I believe we do need we need a uh, more we need hundred more police um, compared to Vancouver, which is the other area, um, which is uh, right. Um, the, that one is just a little bit more than us. It's got six hundred over six hundred uh, population, and mm-hmm. they have a lot more police. Mm-hmm. So for for our you know our, our city here, we got lots of crime, and and we need more police. We need hundred hundred fifty more police on the street. 
so they can do their tracking, more tracking. Yeah, so and we need to. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think you know that the, the we need to put the police accountable, but to do that, they have to have enough police to service the city. Yeah, and and more police officers would also act as a deterrent to criminal activity. If you have a greater police presence, it's more of a deterrent to people committing crimes. But are you, are you finding that people are generally on side with you, or do they start talking about budgetary concerns? We, I, I believe we did ask for more police, but we didn't get it. But I guess we, we don't, I, I guess either, either the funding problem or we just, some reason we didn't get it. We yeah. didn't get it. We, we need to get it. We need to get more police yeah. on the street doing more road checks. You have to constantly checking drugs and, and guns. But they don't usually check for those. Now, you know, they do have some police on the street right now checking cell phone users, but they don't, like, they, that, those are the roadblocks for, for cell phone or just checking on a uh, hiding spot and checking whoever using cell phone. But they don't have enough police to specifically check uh, targets for drugs and drugs and uh, gun use. Gun, um, That's a very interesting point. It's something else we talked about on the show yesterday where uh, two individuals were driving at the speed limit and got the attention of police officers for doing that because nobody ever drives at exactly the speed limit. So the police officers pulled them over. And they found $300,000 worth of illegal drugs in the vehicle. And when it went to court, the judge threw out the charge against the individual with the drugs because the judge said the police had no, no reason for the stop or the search. So he got away. The drugs were confiscated, but the individual who had been transporting them, or the individuals, they weren't charged. So that's, uh, you know, that's, sometimes the laws are written in such a way that it's very frustrating. And it must be utterly frustrating to you. Yeah. Yeah, the, our law system is not very strong. Yeah, they're not, uh, you have to adjust the system. It has to be stronger to, to make the residents safe. What would you do as far as minimum sentencing is concerned? What are you recommending? What, what would you like to see? Minimum sentencing mm-hmm. for individuals who commit, who commit violent crimes uh, repeatedly. You know, if they ha- if they carry guns with them and and crime then uh, commit crime, I think the minimum ten years depends what they what they what they di- what they did what they. Yeah, I think that many people in in Canada, the average person would agree with you, but but many in the political arena would start to argue. So you're 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 sending you're delivering this message that you're sharing with us today. You're delivering it to the folks in Surrey as well as you campaign for office. How are you being received? Are people generally supportive of all the points you're making? Um, I do have a lot of people supporting me and lots of people encourage me to do it. Um, and I, I continue looking for more support, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. You can check out my website, um, my Facebook page, and I do have a lot of people supporting me and share my posts. And I, I think the one of the posts I posted only about two weeks ago, and it was 40 shares. So people do support me, but we need more more support, more ways. We want we want our ways to be heard in yeah. Ontario. What's your webpage? Uh, BeckyZhou.com. So B-E-C-K-Y-Z-H-O-U.com. You're a, you're a remarkably brave person. There are 
I think most people, when a, when a terribly tragic event happens in their lives, and particularly if it's precipitated by a criminal act, might completely withdraw, uh, and understandably so. But you're standing up and you're saying, uh, this kind of what happened we to you must to never happen it. again. Yeah, yeah Ms. Shaw, thank you. We want changes. We, won't, we don't want any other family to, go, to, to have to go through what I have gone through. Yeah. How are you? How are you doing? How are you doing? Are you, are you sort? Are you getting better? Yeah, yeah. I just, we we want to see changes. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the time. Thank you to have me here. Take good care. Okay. Becky Zhao. That's b e c k y z h o u. dot com. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.